how to interpret the Bible, and we're narrow, narrowing in on genre. So we're focusing on genre today. Uh, as Nate helpfully said, genre is a category or style of writing, music or art, and because we're talking about the Bible, of course, it's it's style of writing. Um, it's very important that we address this topic because there are many genres in the Bible and each genre has its own interpretive keys that aid our understanding of the genres we are reading. A helpful quote from Klein, uh, genre is crucial because each piece of literature has its own frame of reference, ground rules, strategy and purpose. I wanted to pretty much just demonstrate the importance of genre today by going through some passages of the Bible and then asking you guys questions, getting some interaction going, and then just offering one or two really important interpretive keys for those genres. Um, so essentially the objective of today is to help improve our ability to read and interpret scripture. So let's dive into our first passage. Oh, I left my clicker. Sorry. Okay, cool. So, so obviously, well, not obviously, but one of the questions I'm going to be asking you is like, where the, what book of the Bible the passage is from. So that's why it's not up there. Just FYI. So, how then can, can I dispute with God? How can I find words to argue with Him? Though I were innocent. I could, though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me catch my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. So my first question today is what book of the Bible is this from? Job, nailed it. Um, yeah, so this is from Job chapter 9. Oh, sorry, you, did you get it as well? He got it as well. He got it as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is specifically from Job chapter 9. And this is a part of Job's dialogue. So he's dialoguing with his friends, and they're talking about why he's experiencing the suffering he's experienced. Uh, you might not notice from that passage alone, but in all of his dialogues, he essentially accuses God of being unrighteous because he is punishing Job despite him being a man of God. He goes as far as to say that God is displaying his awesome power in him by punishing him so severely. That's Job 10:15 to 17. So I ask you another question. Do we agree with Job when he says that God is bullying him or punishing him? Yeah, so essentially, we no, we don't agree with Job that God is unrighteous. Um, I'm glad we got that one right. <laughs> We've been a bit awkward if everyone was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course not. Like, we believe that God's very nature is love, and we know that because that is, we know that because that's who he's revealed himself to be through the scriptures. 
Moreover, what is equally explicit in Scripture is that God loves righteousness and consequence, consequently, therefore, hates sin. His very nature is opposed to sin. So yeah, we're all on board there, but why do we take, why do we not agree with Job's words here, but we take Paul very seriously in his epistle to the Romans when he s- talks about God's righteousness? It's, sorry, it's, I, I would, how can I, where's Nate? How do I, if, when I ask a question, how do I make it obvious that I'm asking a question that's not rhetorical? Okay, that's a question, yeah. So, okay, yeah, cool. So why, why do we take Paul very seriously when he talks about God's righteousness, but we disagree with Job? Um, yeah, does anyone? Yeah, so essentially the, the sermon gives it away. You bang on, genre. That's going to be the answer to most of our questions today. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, so the Bible tells a story, a grand narrative, as you are talking about, that starts in Genesis and concludes with the new heavens and new earth. We believe that the story is true, but not everything done and said in the story is endorsed. Narrative, as you said, and dialogue are two genres that communicate real events and real conversations, but that does not necessarily mean that events or dialogue theologically correct, as you pointed out, which just means correct. Um, we, have an appropriate, we have an appropriate example from this very book, actually. Job's friends told him that God, God is righteous and therefore would only punish him if he had sinned. Uh, they concluded that it must have been either Job's family or him that transgressed against God or sinned against God and this idea is called the retribution principle. The idea that the wicked will suffer and the righteous will prosper. It's kind of a common theme in the book of Proverbs and some Psalms. Uh, and Job's friends were assured of this. Uh, I would even argue that Job was too. But of course we know that God doesn't agree with this idea that his people were inferring here. Because he later shows up in chapter 42 of Job, and he rebukes the friends for what they had said. He said to Job's friends, My anger is stirred up against you, because you have not spoken what is right about me. Therefore, God does not endorse what the friends taught. Uh, And, of course, you can say the same for the genre narrative. For, For example, basically, all the major biblical figures in the Bible did things that were terribly wrong. You know, David... Solomon, um, Moses, Noah, um, yeah, reoccurring theme, and we, d- we don't endorse this in the Bible. But the, yeah, what about the epistles then, which is all the letters sent in the New Testament, which is basically every book minus the first five, if you include Revelation as an epistle. Uh, we believe that the letters or epistles are sent to teach right thinking, we call that orthodoxy, and right behavior, we call that orthopraxy. These epistles are written by disciples or apostles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the very purpose of communicating truth. So when we read an epistle, that's why we believe everything the epistle says, essentially. Um, Yeah. So can we get the next verse up there, please? Oh, 
it's already up there. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. Duh, do we have any hands? What book? This Oh, we got plenty of hands. Either one of you, just shout it out. Sorry? No, sorry. Yeah, Ecclesiastes. Uh, if you remember the first sermon that I online, I said the, I said the word wrong, which is a little bit embarrassing, so if you want to go back and watch that. But Ecclesiastes, um, I think that's right. A quick, I'll give a quick overview of the book before we discuss its genre. The author of this book discusses the point of life, or the lack of importance of life. He discusses the importance or lack of, of many things such as wisdom, toil, labor, righteousness, pleasure, and more. The author's conclusion of these matters is that essentially everything is utterly and completely meaningless. <laughs> Even our hard work is pointless because we die and everything we work for withers away. Therefore, the author concludes that we should enjoy the simple pleasures of life and strive for things like righteousness, wisdom, and pleasure, but do it all in mo moderation, because once again, everything is utterly meaningless. Yeah, this, the genre for this book is wisdom, but wisdom under the sun. So what are the fundamental keys for understanding this genre, and fundamental for interpreting this genre is understanding the phrase life under the sun. Does anyone know what the phrase life under the sun may be referring to? Yeah? Could you expand on that? You're Yes, that's definitely on the right track. Can anyone expand on that? That's correct, but would anyone like to expand a little bit on that? Sorry? Yeah, so, yeah, pretty much. So, Nate? Yeah, pretty much. So, it just refers to life not including, as you said, the purposes of God. Because as we know as Christians, we've been revealed in the New Testament, God's plan for us, God's purpose in salvation. But the author of this book, Kehillet, he claims to be agnostic on the purpose of life and agnostic on what happens after death, which basically means he claims to not know. So his focus is on wisdom without reference to the purpose of life and God's saving plan. Um, the reason why this is really important is when we read it, if we don't read it in light of life under the sun, we will not be able to understand when he says things like life is meaningless and we don't want to strive for too much righteousness and, and things like that. So, it refers to life excluding God's reconciling, saving work that takes place through Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. It refers to a life without eschatological hope, 
which is essentially the hope of what is to come and assurance of what Christ has already achieved. So once again, when we read this genre, we need to read it in light of the limitations that the author has himself set. For those who are struggling to understand that, we can pair that, we can we can compare it to the wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs is also wisdom, but its focus is on general principles that gives us practical advice for everyday life. It's essentially contextual wisdom. So its limitation is that we can't read it as black and white statements, as true in every situation statements. I'll give you an example from Proverbs 26. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will sell, or you yourself will be just like him. And this is what the next verse is. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he or she will be wise in her own eyes. So it essentially says to do the opposite thing, which teaches us that its focus is on practical applied wisdom, not absolute all-time statements. So similar to Ecclesiastes, it is a helpful book that can teach us a lot, but only if we realize what sort of literature it is, what sort of piece of writing it is, and what sort of piece of writing it is not. And of course, the same goes for all other genres. We must know what the piece of writing is and what the piece of writing is not. Uh, Can we get the next verse up, please? Thank you. I think we all know this one. (laughs) For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. I was so grateful that no one quoted this in the promise section because this would have been a really awkward part of the sermon. But can we guess what book? (laughs) Because it's an easy one. I'm going to go verse, chapter and book. Can we get verse, chapter and book? Oh, come on, Nate. <laughs> it's okay, everyone knew it, everyone, everyone knew it anyways. Firstly, an overview of the passage, and then the genre. To understand Jeremiah 29, 11, you must understand Jeremiah 25, where the Lord informs his prophet, Jeremiah, that Judah will go into exile for 70 years as punishment for their lawlessness and disobedience to the will of God. During exile, false prophets claim that they will be freed from their slavery. Jeremiah warns them that these prophets are wicked and that they do not speak on behalf of the Lord. However, Jeremiah does provide, does, does give this prophecy, which provides hope despite affirming that they will be in exile for another 70 years. So, as previously previously mentioned there, the genre is prophecy. When we read prophecy, we must acknowledge the context the prophecy is made in, which means taking note of the when the prophecy was meant to take place, or when did it take place, why, why was the prophecy made, and what for. In this case, the when is 70 years. So the people of Judah were prophesied to be in exile for 70 years. Um, Obviously, the people were Judah. 
and why, the short-term reason for why was because God is a loving, gracious, faithful, and, re- and relational, and because the disciplinary action had served its purpose, but for the long-term reason, God promised that a Messiah, or in the Greek, a Christ, would come through a specific lineage and represent humanity, resulting in reconciliation between God and man. The promised mediator was to come through the line of Judah, and therefore, for God's grand purpose and salvation, he continued relationship with them. So God was faithful to these people to bring his grand purpose to fruition. The question many of us probably have of thinking about is, in any way can we apply this verse to our own lives? Can we apply it to our family members' lives, our friends' lives? And the simple answer is no, we can't. Uh, <laughs> the pros- as said before, the promise has nothing to do with our prosperity. It has everything to do with God's promise in Genesis 49.10 and then later Micah 5.2 that the Christ would come through the line of Judah. How are we doing for time? We've got eight minutes. I might skip a part of this next session. But can we go to the next verse, please? Thank you. Then another sign appeared in heaven, a huge red dragon that had seven horns and ten crowns on his head. Oh, sorry, I read that wrong. Had seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven diadem crowns. Now the dragon's tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and held them toward the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. Guess the book. Yeah. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Um, I'll give a quick overview of the genre. Revelation is an allegorical book or symbolic book that addresses the story of the good news, the gospel, in a really beautiful way that uses poetic images. Many of these images come from other literature, like other of the same genre. A lot of people think Revelation is like its own genre. It's like, no, um, it comes, it uses the same imagery as other books that use the same, that have the same genre. I actually muddled that sentence up, but you know what I'm saying. Many images come from the other, other apocalyptic literature, that's what the genre is called such as Daniel and Ezekiel. Moreover, the book discusses a a story in a twofold way. It includes a battle between spiritual angelic forces, so it looks at the good news through the light of a cosmic battle between spiritual beings, and then it also looks at it from the ground level of human beings. The purpose of this book seems to be to encourage the Christians facing persecution in the first century. However, it has a timeless nature because it encourages Christians of all ages facing hardship, persecution, and suffering. A big part of this encouragement is Jesus' saving work, but also the eschatological hope, as we said before, that Jesus accomplished. In other words, the very end of time, where we will live with God as new creatures, as we talked about um, a a few weeks back in the Romans 8 sermon, as new creatures in Christ, to be and dwell with God forever. 
Thus, this book is very connected. Oh, find this. this book is very connected to the biblical story. I realized when I wrote the sermon that I wouldn't have nearly enough time to dive into this text specifically. So, if you wanted to talk about this text specifically, I'm available after the service to talk to you about it. Um, so, I will just focus on interpretive keys for this passage and the book as a whole. Uh, I know that you all want to hear about the dragon and the beast and the mark of the beast and the thousand-year reign of Christ, the rapture, and why is the book focusing on Israel? I know that's what you want to want to hear about, um, and we can talk about that after the service. I'm happy to, but obviously I only got about five minutes left, so I'm just going to talk about the two fundamental uh, keys for interpreting the genre. First fundamental point for understanding this genre is that... Its nature is poetic. You cannot successfully read this literature if you try to read it like a literal narrative. Okay, if you don't, if you don't um, attempt to first study the biblical imagery, images and the poetry, you're gonna be stuck believing things like there's a literal dragon with seven heads. You're gonna believe stuff like God's gonna elect 144,000 Jews that will not succumb to persecution, which for so many reasons is an inappropriate um, reading of of the text. You're going to believe stuff that, like if you get a microchip in your hand, you know, or your forehead, you can't go to heaven. Um, Pretty much stuff that's really disconnected from the biblical story. It's really disconnected from all of Paul's writings and the Gospels and, yeah, it's just... Very disconnected. So my first crucial point is that we must read it alongside other books and chapters that use the same images, language, themes, and so on. All of this literature of genre focuses on dreams, visions, and symbols. But super important to understand, this genre focuses on God's intervention exclusively from heaven. At the center of this, God's people have their reoccurring crises. Their history was so terrible that they doubted God's sovereignty. This literature in response assures God's people of God's sovereign intervention using poetic language and symbols. The most explicit biblical instances of this genre is Daniel 7 to 12, Revelation, but also Ezekiel Ezekiel. Dang it, another one. Ezekiel 38, 39, Isaiah 24, 27, Joel 2, 28 to 3, 21, Zechariah 1 to 6 and 9 to 14, and Matthew 24, 25. So essentially, we need to put this book with the other apocalyptic literatures. We have to read them alongside the genre that they are a part of. The other key, I've got two minutes, I'll be super quick. The other key biblic- the other key interpretation for this genre is biblical theology. Biblical theology. Does anyone know what biblical theology is? Yeah, bang on. So biblical theology is the it's the int- it's taking the entire story of the Bible. You take it as a unified whole and you look at um, the full biblical story and you derive an understanding from Scripture by looking at that entire story that culminates, that 
that focuses on Jesus Christ and, again, his saving work. So we cannot understand Revelation without understanding the whole biblical story, the story as a whole. If we don't figure out where Revelation fits in the biblical story or fits in the narrative, then we definitely will fail to understand it. But what is absolutely crucial is that we place it somewhere where it actually aligns with Scripture. And I'll give you an example of this. So we'll take the church. If we look at the relationship between Israel and church and Scripture, as, as we just went through the other week, the church was grafted in. So God did not go from Israelites, abandon them, and go to the church. He grafted the church into Israel, and now Israel, in a sense, is the church. Uh, Paul says, not all Israel is Israel. Um, so yeah, our understanding of the church is all people from all over the world. And in Revelation, we see a specific focus on Israel. So if we read Revelation as God intervening or carrying out his purposes through Israel, we are reverting in the story because Israel is now the church. It's not ethnic anymore. So if we read, if we read Revelation as talking about a literal Israel, then we are reverting in the story. We're going back to Deuteronomy. We're going back to where God chose the Israelites to be his people. So with that example in mind, it's important to remember this imagery and these symbols and what they are referring to. Uh, I'll just finish quickly with an exhortation, or sorry, sorry, just practical advice because we're finishing. This is... I just wanted to finish by, yeah, encouragement. So surround yourself with people who have studied biblical interpretation and can be a great benefit in your Bible reading. Since biblical interpretation is so crucial, I really, really, really encourage you guys to engage in reading your Bibles with others and with people who have gone through biblical interpretation and can be a great benefit to you in understanding the Bible. Um, and I would also like to encourage you all to that reading books on biblical interpretation is Bible study. It's not like you have Bible study and then you have like theological studies. Of course, reading books about biblical interpretation and literature on biblical interpretation is really important for your biblical studies and it's part of your biblical studies. So I just wanted to finish by recommending a book by William Klein, Introduction to Biblical Interpretation and Michael Gorman, Elements of Biblical Exegesis. Thank you so much for your time. Um, have a lovely week.